Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is Season 6, Episode 18. Today, I'm speaking with author, shopkeeper, and food writer Lily Ramirez Foran. Lily Ramirez Foran is the founder of Ireland's first Mexican boutique grocery store and cookery school. It is called Picado Mexican, and it's in Dublin. She's also the author behind the popular new Mexican food blog, A Mexican Cook. Lily has a new cookbook out called Tacos that you can purchase from Blasta Books. We have a link for that in the bio, as well as the links to her websites. Without further ado, I'm going to take you to my wonderful conversation with Lily. I had a really good time talking to her, and I felt like I could talk to her all day. And here we go. Well, I'm very glad to get to talk to you. And um, you. I was recommended um, to talk to you, and I, I got to look up your information. And um, yeah, I was really just, I, I've just really been very much in love with your, your blog and your recipes. Thank and you. I've really, I'm really looking, I gotta, I'm gonna get the book and do a review of it. I can't really wait to read it because it really looks amazing. I love Mexican food very much. I grew up with it. I grew up near the border. It's in my blood. Um, a lot of my family members, you know, I grew up, you know, cooking beans having fresh tortillas and tamales all the time. So it's in my blood and I really feel very close to it. So I was really curious to talk to you and bringing it to Ireland. When I lived in England in the eighties, Mexican food was impossible to find. And if you did, it was iffy. The tortillas were horrible. And like the avocados would be as hard as um, sugar pine. And it was just not good. And I, I, I just gave up. I, I never even tried to find Mexican food there because it wasn't worth the time. And I'd wondered, I had people telling me over time that it's starting to slowly get into London. They said it was coming into Ireland and I think they might've been referring to you. So I wondered, Lee really on to talk to you about that and your growing up and everything, you know, so I'm so happy to talk to you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm excited about it. Apologies for the lightest. I have a north uh, face kitchen and it's it's so hard and there's so many windows it's so hard to kind of find a spot where the no you're, you're totally fine I, I just i'm loving all the jars and stuff behind you it's like my oh, kitchen stop, yeah <laughs> it's like disaster we're we're actually going to get our kitchen renovated uh hopefully in the next three months so we're slowly eating our way through everything on the pantry because i just don't want to work gonna have to move out for at least three months so Ooh. the least I, I am it's been very cathartic for the last three months we've been eating out of the freezer every cupboard because like any other cook I tend to hoard food and spices and stuff and oh my god and like a good Mexican I don't care about celery dates so you know so people my, my mother-in-law is really weird because uh, she goes around and she does a cleanup of, of her of her covers every six months and anything that's out of date she throws and I'm going that's so wasteful why are you like you know cinnamon sticks no like don't you know they're fine and she goes no no they're not as potent and and I have this thing growing up that you, you cannot waste food and it doesn't matter um you know unless there's something growing on it or it smells funny you eat it <laughs> Yeah, I, my my uh, wife and kids are like that. If it's if it expired yesterday, they'll throw it away. And I'm like, do you think your head's gonna explode? What do you think's gonna happen to you? You think you're just gonna suddenly seize up and die? I mean, it's just a sell by date. It's a suggested date. It's a suggestion. It, there's so much food waste, and I always tell people this story. Um, when I first move, I'm in Ireland now, 21 years which is really scary because I'm going to be living in Ireland very soon, longer than I ever lived in Mexico. And, and it's kind of such a weird thing to even say, because when you ask me, I, I, I am Mexican and I feel Mexican. And even though I've been here almost as long as I ever was in Mexico, I still feel like, you know, um, Mexican, you know, it's only when I go back to Mexico that I feel that I, I understand how much my life in Ireland has changed me as a person right when I go to Mexico I kind of miss tea and I miss you know little things in Ireland that you know we don't have in Mexico but I always tell this story when I first moved there was absolutely nothing 
in, in, in Ireland that was Mexican, nothing. And actually, in fairness, I came in when the Celtic tiger was roaring and, you know, there was a yeah. lot of wealth in the country and, you know, people were traveling a lot and everything. And, and I remember going through like the supermarket and going, why there isn't any beans? The only beans I could buy were like the Heinz baked beans, which to <laughs> me were horrific. <laughs> because they're sweet and they're just disgusting, right? Yeah. Uh, I I I I grown to love them, not the teen ones, but you know, homemade ones. But <clears throat> at the time, I remember thinking, "This is crazy," and there was absolutely nothing. Forget about fresh produce. Uh, like nobody, nobody. My in-laws never had an avocado or a mango. I remember the first time I I found an avocado and. I kind of went to share it with them. They looked at it and they were like, how do I eat it? Do I bite it? It was all these, you know, <laughs> uh, completely alien food. And the, at the time, there was a supermarket uh, chain um, called Super Value. They're long gone now, but um, it's not Super Value, sorry, Super Queen. And Super Queen was really well known in Ireland for being sort of like a, uh, a posh version of a supermarket. They were very into quality and it was really good food they sell. And there was a guy from Colombia who was working as a head buyer, um, probably on year two of, of my arrival in Ireland. So this is maybe 2001. And um, he obviously was missing ingredients from, from his homeland as well. So all of a sudden I walked into Super Queen and I saw these jars of, uh, uh, of mole and jalapenos. And there were a few things, I clearly remember the mole because it was, it's, it's a very iconic glass kind of jar oh, yeah. that hasn't changed in years, right? Yeah. And I remember going, oh my God. And I, I literally took, there was about five or six Mexican things in, and they were all one brand. And I remember taking them all from the, the uh, shelves, putting them in my trolley and happily walking to pay for them. And we had like a, a shed out in, outside in the house and it was really cold. So we had it kind of shelved to basically like this one, but I told to keep stuff uh, cool. And um, I remember storing, going to every super value in Dublin, uh, not Super Valley, I keep saying Super Valley, Super Queen, and buying all the existence they had, because I was kind of, and I, it paid off because obviously in 2001, nobody knew Mexican food. It was really, really alien. So that wasn't, and mole is very acquired taste. I, I, I find out for Irish people, it's not something they love uh, initially. So I bought everything for years, Dina, I was eating, out of date mole and not one jar out of that shed went uh, went to waste. I ate five year out of date mole and I'm still around, you know? So it's all about how you keep food. And, and let's face it, a lot of these commercial brands are so full of crap that, you know, it doesn't, uh, you know, they'll survive an apocalyptic war and, you know, uh, you, they'll still be okay. So uh, yeah, sell by dates they're a guideline, you know, unless there's like dairy or something, you know, properly that will go off. But um, yeah, and, and that initiative of Mexican produce was kind of very short-lived. They never really restocked the shelves. So I was probably the only buyer they had of all those products, but I bought them all. <laughs> I had um, a prawn, uh, avocado prawn in England back in the 80s. And I went to <laughs> cut into it and it flipped right off my plate and I got it back and I, I took the knife and I, I was poking it and it was as hard as a countertop. And I called the waitress aside and I said, what, what do you call this? And she says, it's an avocado. I said, this is inedible. You, this is not ripe. You can't eat this. And she's like, oh, she goes, no wonder nobody's been able to eat it. And I said, yeah, that's, that's gotta be, you gotta have some give there. You can't just, you can't just... I said, well, how do you expect me to possibly eat this? She's like, I thought it was more of a container for the food. I'm like, no, you're supposed to be able to eat this. That's the whole idea. <laughs> oh, my God, that's so funny. 
<laughs> so for our listeners who are not familiar with you, can we talk a little bit about your background? Of course. So um, I was born in Mexico, uh, born and rare in Mexico. And I, um, I was studying, um, I always loved languages. So I was studying um, a major in Japanese and a minor in English in college. And on my first year in college, I applied for a, it's like a scholarship. Um, and you, it's for people who are studying Japanese at university level, but have never been to Japan. And it's something that the Japanese government organizes every year, right? So um, they, you go in Mexico, it's, it's different in every country, but in Mexico, you go through, you, you get a test, and then you go through an interview process and then they choose two or three people and they bring you to Japan, um, all expenses paid. And it's a study trip, it's a cultural trip to, to see Japan, right? So um, I applied and I got chosen. So I, I went with another, there was 123 people from all over the world. They were all studying Japanese. And we, we spent a month traveling through Japan and seeing Japan for the first time um, all together. And in that same trip, there was this Irish man, uh, this young Irish guy, and it was love at first sight. I just saw him and I knew I was gonna marry the man. And uh, so we became friends and, you know, sounds like crazy, but this is, maybe 23 years ago, I didn't have a computer. Email was just starting to be kind of mainstream. Oh yeah. So we used to write letters to each other. The first three months of our long distance relationship, we had letters and then email and chat rooms and all of that happened. Uh, so I met Alan uh, in that trip and uh, I ended up moving to Ireland uh, eight years later and we we spent like he went to Mexico the year after we met. Then I went to I came to Ireland. Then we met in New York. Then they went back to Mexico. And then eventually we said, look, we just need to live in the same country to see if this is going to work. So I left Mexico and came, um, decided to take a, a career break and do some um, go back to college. And uh, on year three of my stay in Ireland, we got married and, you know, we were together ever since. So, um, but I came in pretty much with a language and kind of uh, business corporate background. And while I was in uh, college here, I kind of realized that I had a passion for for cooking and I come from a family of, of great cooks my my mother and my great-grandmother my grandmother they were all amazing cooks and I was one of those that was very hesitant to get involved in the kitchen because I kind of felt that it was very defining for a woman to embrace the kitchen it was what was expected of you because you know you were going to be somebody's wife and somebody's mother and you you had to be good in the kitchen and I sort of rejected that stereotype for a long time and then when I moved to Ireland what I found was the first three months were amazing I loved my meat and three veg everything in Ireland was incredible and I loved it but after three months I started getting the shakes and going oh my god I kind of need a tortilla and I need kind of like <laughs> some yeah. carne asada and some salsa and a little bit of chili in my life you know I love I love Irish food, but it it was a big cultural shock for me not being able to, to get food. And then that's when I realized that if I didn't get into the kitchen, I was going to be homesick forever because who we are is so connected to what we eat. And I'm not talking about if you eat kale, you're going to look lovely. I'm talking about the core of your heritage, you know? When I get sick, I, I yearn for a, a bowl of chicken soup with garbanzos with chickpeas and a little bit of chipotle and a slice of, you know, 
queso fresco and a hug of my mom, right? But I couldn't have the hug of my mom. I needed to learn to make that damn chicken soup so I could have it. And, and I asked, that's how it was, it was sheer necessity uh, getting into the kitchen. And once I got into it, I realized I really loved it. And, and I saw it as an opportunity for me to showcase what Mexican food was truly about, because it was a lot of misconceptions at the time. You know, a lot of Irish people had, and still have, even though after I've been at it for 20 years, um, they have this idea that, of Mexican food that's quite stereotypical, right? And right. It's your hard shell taco, and it's everything is fried and everything is brown and everything has truckloads <laughs> of cheese and a yeah. mountain of coriander and, and, and all these things. And, and there was so little, uh, you know, 20 years ago, there was little or nothing on Mexican food. And what was there was so abysmally wrong that, you know, I felt like it was my duty to set the record straight. And I spent probably about, I started with my family, conversing everybody, my Irish family, conversing everybody into proper Mexican food. But eventually I realized that, you know, I loved the process and I started taking loads of courses and reading a lot. I'm an avid reader, so I, I, I do a lot of research. Um, and, you know, but I was constantly complaining about what was passing for Mexican food. And my other half was so patient, uh, probably got so fed up at some point. I remember this clearly because it was 2010. Uh, he, uh, I said, one more time, you know, oh, this is terrible. Like, why people think this is Mexican food? And he turned around and he said to me, look, if you're not happy about it, do something. And I remember thinking, you know what, you're right. I'm going to start doing something about it. And I started writing a blog and, and it, it was it was really cathartic because like if you read, um, I've taken down a few of the posts because they were very passionate, right? But if you if you were a follower from the initial from the, from the first stages of the blog, there was very little photography because I didn't really know much about photography. And there was a lot of rants. There was a lot of anger over you know things that were uh, were being done to Mexican food in Ireland, and I was not taking any of it. But um, I used the blog as a as a way of you know letting out the rage and uh, and you know, starting to write recipes and documenting recipes from my family that, you know, I, I nobody had written, you know, and I think that sadly, sometimes it's what, um, what tends to happen in many families that recipes, recipes stay in the family and they don't get documented and they don't get they get passed down from mother to daughter until you get to a generation who doesn't cook and then everything is lost. And we were getting to that point in my family um, because I, I had decided I wasn't going to cook, you know. So I, I've been working extra time getting as many recipes as, as I can from, you know, time when I grew up and then taking them and adapting them to what I can easily get in Ireland as well because that's also important and at some point my writing became constricted by what I could the ingredients that I could get in here and the ingredients that I could substitute to you know with success um, and that's when the shop came about because I was like you know what um, I, I need I need a regular supply of masa. And while I was writing the blog, the blog became really popular. I think it was the right time as well, the right time for, for Mexican food. And there were things happening in London because I think the UK is about 10 years ahead of us when it comes to Mexican food, right? right. Bigger population, more, um, the, the, the Mexican population, the Latin American population, Ireland is quite small compared to, you know, what you get in England. So they, they have been making Mexican food better uh, 
than us for a long time, right? So I think people were traveling to London and, you know, getting all these fab new tastes and then coming back to Ireland and going, oh, well, I want to cook it. They would find my blog, but they, you know, I was getting boxes sent from home and I was bribing friends to come and bring me stuff. So that's where the opportunity for the shop kind of came about. I was like, well, if I'm, if I'm bringing stuff for me, I might just as well bring it for other people who want to cook the same way. And that's how we started the, the shop. The shop started online and it remained online for four years. And then we found a brick and mortar place for it. And when I found it, I was adamant that we needed to have a kitchen in the space so that I could show people how to use these ingredients. Because I was online, I was preaching to the converted, you know, if you found us, you were looking already for Mexican food. But the challenge now was to have a high street shop and getting other people, not just those looking for Mexican food, but just a regular Joe to walk in and buy stuff. And um, so from the world go, we had the, the kitchen and, and the school attached to the shop. And it's it's been a great kind of symbiotic relationship because this the, the school creates a demand for the shop and the shop creates a demand for the school. And it, it's worked really, really well prior to before COVID or pre-COVID we had a waiting list of six months for the classes because we I, I just couldn't host enough classes to to you know hit the demand so it's been really exciting because it's it's I've had the opportunity to to showcase my heritage in the best way possible I don't know if um, you've been to America much, but I know that we have two holidays that are close together here every year. Um, we have St. Patrick's Day in March, and then we have Cinco de Mayo. And on both of these days, they kind of reduce both cultures to cliches. And it's kind of mm. always maddening to me because they'll trot out on St. Patrick's Day some horrible corned beef and overcooked cabbage and potatoes. And they'll drink ridiculous amounts of alcohol and even drink horrible green beer. And then on Cinco de Mayo, they'll have, they'll try out all this cliche Mexican food with covered with cheese, as we said, and then they'll drink ridiculous amounts of say Dos Equis and um, tequila. And in, I, I think it's kind of an example of in our culture and maybe others where they reduce cultures to cliches. Like we don't know anything about them. So we'll just get a cliff notes on it and like, you know, interpret it as we will. So living in Ireland as a person from Mexico and seeing how both cuisines are treated and misunderstood, has this been like a, a revelation to you as far as like how you may have thought of Irish food and what you know now and teaching people how to cook Mexican food who have the same issue in their culture? Has this been kind of something you've had as discussion? Yeah, well, it's, we, we, have it, we have it every day in every class. Um, we it's actually it's become it went from being maddening and enraging to being actually fun to show people that the stereotypes are just so so wrong and and the the number one um thing that happens in uh, in my classes we always it, it doesn't matter which class you take there's always a salsa at least one salsa in the class because you know there's no Mexican food without a good salsa so I always we we host groups of 12 people and I always go around the table and I go how many of you have made a salsa and there's inevitably at least half of the class puts their hands up and then I ask how do you make your salsa and this is the same response with slight variations around the table. They go, well, I chop loads of fresh tomato, some onion, a bit of fresh chili, some garlic, uh, coriander, splash of lime juice, sometimes a little bit of um, olive oil, and then that's my salsa. And, and I go, you know what, it's lovely, but it, it is not a salsa. 
And then I go through the process of, of explaining what a salsa is, what a real Mexican salsa is. And it never, never fails to um, shock the people in the class. And I think what we do at the Cado, and I think that's really important when you're fighting any sort of stereotype, um, is that you show them how the real thing is made, but you also give them the background or where, you know, the, the dish, uh, how the dish evolved, where it came from and why we're doing it uh, now. And, and I think salsas are a great example because it, salsas in Mexico are sort of an heirloom, you know, they're, every family has a core recipe uh, two or three recipes that they are considered their own and they've been passed down for generations and you know it might not just be a simple salsa verde but it has this added extra and, and Mexicans are really weird when it comes to sharing salsa recipes um, we because it, it, it's a very poor country and a lot of the um, the salsas are considered heirlooms you know yourself if you have an entire strip of taco trucks or taco stands the one with the longest queue is the one with the best salsa mm -hmm. so people consider salsas an, a very valuable heirloom if you married into a family uh, that has a, a particularly good salsa recipe it might take you two or three grandchildren before you're led into the recipe you know it is a really weird thing. If you corner a Mexican to give you a salsa recipe, you can be damn sure they're going to leave something out so you can't replicate it. <laughs> and I think the entire, the entire, you know, building up the, the momentum to then show them a, a very simple recipe um, of, of salsa that doesn't require any shop, chopping, that it's very simple. It's a pan fried um, uh, pan fried salsa roja that's on the bowl in my house and in my mother's house uh, you know I grew up with a bowl of these on the table every day and when you run out of it you just make a fresh uh, a fresh bowl again and I think sharing that those type of stories and, and the cultural nuances of the cuisine is really important because I think it the the recipe stops just being a recipe and becomes this you know story that people can then retell and when they're making that salsa you know they customers keep coming back and going oh my god I make that salsa all the time and every time I tell that story and then it's just this ripple effect you you had it with one person and that, that person's spreading it along and I think that's the best way to fight stereotypes and it's funny because I see that a lot now with Irish food we get a lot of kind of newly arrivals into the shop either young Mexican uh, students that are coming in for exchange or you get like Americans that have just moved into Ireland and they're missing Mexican food and they walk in and they all complain about, oh, my God, it's just like I can't get Mexican food anywhere. And Irish food is so bland. And I'm going, is it really bland or are you just cooking the wrong thing or eating in the wrong places? And I think Irish food is incredibly delicious. And it's trend of it last on the strength of the ingredients you know you cannot get better and sorry New Zealand but I believe Irish lamb is outstanding Irish yes. beef properly proper grass-fed beef, beef is incredible I mean all it needs is a sprinkle of salt and a sprinkle of pepper and a really hot pan and then you caramelize that fat you know, and th this is what I think when when we talk about uh, culinary stereotypes, this is where people kind of forget that, you know, we're so lucky in Ireland that I can get on my car. I live in Dublin, uh, in, in uh, Dublin South. I can get on my car and in 15 minutes, I can be on a farm buying fresh eggs, fresh lamb, um, veggies, 
uh, anything that you want, super fresh. And that's not something, sadly, where I come from in Mexico, that is not something that happens because it's it's a five million people city. It's very big. It's it's you know, it's all about convenience, and there's very little fresh stuff. You do have to travel a lot longer. But when people come in for the first time and they see that you go to a supermarket here and you don't have the 50 different brands of cereal or the, you know, 20 different types of, you know, there's not as much variety in brands as you would find in the States or in Mexico, but what's there is really, really good. Uh, And it's just a matter of showing these people where to buy and how to buy it. And then just cooking becomes a joy and it's easy to break stereotypes that way, I think. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. Do you um, do you have a nostalgia for some of the things you had growing up. I know your father ran a tortilleria in a small town of uh, Monte. Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, correct. Um, in the state of Tamalpais. Um, can you tell us about your memories growing up um, around the father's yeah, tortilleria? Actually, my, my granddad and my dad, everybody on my dad's family on his side uh, had tortilla bakeries, right? So I grew up, I, I have these really clear memory and, and it doesn't matter. I think it gets stronger as I get older um, of me visiting here um, uh, and it was next to their house. It was in the same land. And I remember probably I was about four years old and they, they had, starting to use the mechanized uh, tortilla uh, machines, right? But he was still nixtamalizing corn and milling right. it in volcanic stones and all that. So they were, th- there was no maseca, no masa harina introduced yet uh, to the bakery. And my grandfather sort of rejected it for, until the day he died, he was totally convinced that we were compromising on, on, on flavor and, and on quality. And he was right, you know? Right. Um, the progress had a cost, but I remember standing at the back of the tortilla and they had two long machines. And if you're familiar with the way they work, and these were the very old ones, but I, but I think they still, the, even the modern ones are tend to be slightly smaller, but they still work on the same principle of, yeah. you know, conveyor belts. Uh, so you have comales or hot plates that run uh, in conveyor belts and they they were tree to mimic the three ways the three stage of cooking that you should give a tortilla to give it a proper structure so they'd come out uh from the you know cookie cutter let's call it a tortilla cutter and they land on the first conveyor belt which ran really fast and then they drop onto on this on the other side in a conveyor belt that ran a lot slower and then they fall into a third conveyor belt that ran fast again. And that would give the three-way cooking. And after the last conveyor belt, they would fell into a chicken wire conveyor belt. And that was just cooling. So yeah. they came out really puffed up at the beginning. And as they reached the end of the conveyor belt, they, they had flattened and you would just pile them up. So I remember standing at the back uh, at at the back of the machine with my grandpa and I having a stick of butter in my hand and he would have me one of those really puffed up, super hot, hot tortillas and me rubbing this butter in it and just all the butter dripping down my arm and my elbow and then rolling it up and biting it and it is just ah. I can still taste it Dean. you're it's making me so hungry 
really strong memories that it'll never leave me right and and it's funny because I don't have a lot of as a child I suppose I don't have as a strong a food memory with my doing that with my dad but I do have this one really strong with my granddad and you know I I don't remember I, I can't remember seeing his face but I remember seeing like standing next to him and just seeing his trousers and he always wore khaki kind of pleated trousers I suppose he was of a gener of certain generation um but I think that never leave me you know the whole process of the 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 rhythm of corn and Mante uh, Mante was a, a really well-known uh, tiny town it was very small but it was surrounded by um, uh, sugarcane fields so Mante has and Kiko there were two small towns in Tamaulipas they had at the time the biggest um, uh, production sugar uh, factory in Mexico mm -hmm. right yeah. So they were very, I suppose they were very, I don't want to say wealthy, but very affluent towns, they bussing towns, because there was all this economic activity happening. And we lived in Mante uh, for probably about six or seven years when I was a child. And then we went back to Monterrey where I, you know, spend the rest of my life. Um, and where originally my mom and dad are both from Monterrey, but my dad's parents emigrated to Mante and set up the tortilleria and they never left. And a lot of the family still uh, lives there, but my parents returned to, to Monterrey. Um, but the whole kind of, the whole town had this rhythm that went with the sugarcane season. Um, so it was some of the most interesting memories in, in, and food memories in my life are kind of all set up in Mante, even though I spent the majority of my conscious childhood and, you know, teenage years in, in Monterrey, most of my food memories come from that time we spent in Mante, uh, living there. So it's, it's a bit strange, but definitely I don't think, um, I don't think that really strong memory of me eating this rolled up tortilla with massives of butter has ever left me. And I do, I try and replicate that in the classes. I always have some butter, Kerrygold, always. And <laughs> I kind of put uh, some, everybody makes tortillas for the first time. And when they get one that's really puffed up, I go, you can get married now. And here's a stick of butter. Do and roll it up and have your very first tortilla uh, with uh, with some butter. And and it, I think it's a lovely. It creates this kind of Mexican and Irish because this what's more Irish than butter, <laughs> and it creates this lovely kind of link between the two cultures, uh, and people sort of get it. I think. I I think I've always we always talk with people about what you know, their death row or last meal would be. And I always say some tortillas with butter, fresh tortillas, of course, with butter, it would be my last okay. request because that was just the food of my soul. That would be, uh, it's still always like the best food memory I've ever had. It's just, it's magical. Are there any, uh, oh, that's great. are there any indigenous recipes or indigenous dishes that are um, particular to Monte? I think Mante is really well known. It's in the uh, Huasteca Tamaulipeca, right? So Mante has, it, it's uh, quite a small town and it has, it's incredibly humid, loads of sugar cane, but it also has one of those weird, it's one of those weird places in Mexico where you find almost every climate in the planet, yeah. you know? So yeah. the, it's very, very fertile and loads of things grow. And, but they're particularly famous for uh, a thing that we call pelliscada. It's like, it's a cross between a sope and a gordita. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically it's a thick uh, masa uh, patty and yeah. it's, it's actually, 
partly cooked and when it's still sort of soft, they pellizcar means to pinch. So they kind of pinch, make kind of almost little wells, yeah. a bit like uh, what you do with, um, oh my God, focaccia, you know, before you cook it, that you kind of imprint it with your, yeah. with your uh, fingers. They do these when they're, they're partly cooked, but they pinch them and they do loads and they become these little kind of craters. Then they put in, they bring them back to the comal, to the hot grill or the hot plate, sorry. And they get some pork lard and they, they kind of drizzle the top of, of this, you know, massa shell um, and let it kind of caramelize a little bit. And then you can choose what, you, what it goes on them. And they are so delicious, you know? You can get beans and deshebrada, which is like, you know, beef very uh, uh, braised with, uh, just garlic and, and salt for a long time. And then they shred it and they cook it in with a tomato and onion and garlic sauce is really, really delicious. So you can have some beans and that, some beans and cheese on it. They're just like that, they're so delicious. And Mante also makes one type of cheese that I yearned all the time. And it's, um, it's a, a cow, uh, it's a queso, it's a type of queso fresco. Um, it's made with um, cow's milk and it's really salty um, yeah. and quite, um, it, it's quite um, rubbery. Um, yeah. And because Manta is so hot and so humid, you do need a lot of salt. That's one thing I don't miss because right. we eat a lot of salt. In Mexico in general, there's an awful lot of salt. When I moved to Ireland, I, I was shocked at how much not salty the food was here and yeah. it took me a long time to kind of reduce the amount of salt that I use but this cheese is particularly good so you put it on 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 your pellizcada and it is just or like even a pellizcada with uh, chicharron and salsa verde oh my god it's to die for and now I'm hungry <laughs> you made me hungry too I know what you're talking <laughs> about I, I I've eaten those around here and throughout my life and it's one of my favorite things. I really, especially with like the beans and just the cheese alone is a favorite of mine. Now, um, what has been the response of you opening Picado Mexican? Um, we talked a little bit about that already, but what's some of the feedback that you've gotten from people in your area about it? And what's the impact it's had on its community? I think it sounds really weird because I don't honestly think that was Mexican food before Picado. I think we've, we've been at it for a long time and I think we had the benefit of being the first and we're constantly innovating but from the world go from the very first time we opened the doors it's been only positive response. I have never had anybody coming in and saying you know we hate these or this isn't real Mexican or I think it's because we approach it from where we're unapologetic we we do what we do and we try and do it with respect and we do it to the best of our abilities and, and I think it's also because what I do I'm very passionate about what I do and I lay my skin on it and uh, to the day you will not find anything in Picado that I do not eat at home right well I think there's one product but you know I I kind of gave in about that you know I was very reluctant to introduce burrito wraps into the mix because you know I wanted to have that separation between between Tex-Mex, Cali-Mex and Mexican food, right? And, and I always felt like in Ireland, there was this heavy, still is, heavy reliance on burritos as a Mexican food. And 
99% Mexicans have never had burrito. You know, burritos yeah. are very regionalized too. And the burritos that we have in Ireland are nothing to do with the burritos from California or the burritos from Texas or even the burritos from Sonora or, or you know, Chihuahua. So I was very reluctant. I wanted that stereotype gone, you know, and it took me a long time. But apart from that, everything on the shelf is stuff that that's my buying policy if i like it i can sell it right if i eat it and i know how to cook it i can tell you how to do it and then you can you can get hooked on it right so myself and lisa and kevin working in the shop we all have our favorite products we all taste everything new comes in we taste it first and if we don't like it it goes back uh you know to the supplier we just don't stock anything that we don't that we can stand behind and i think that passion sort of is contagious um and we we've just been so lucky and honestly what's not to like mexican food is you know true mexican food is delicious right mm -hmm. yeah. you know if if you are our biggest problem in, in Ireland has always been the fact that people think that Mexican food is unhealthy and Mexican food is super spicy. And neither of the two are true. And it's really easy to show them. I had, I can't tell you how long ago, it is a while ago, but I had, um, I often get asked uh, to do stuff around Mexico, you know, in Irish media, because um quite visible uh, as a Mexican, right? So if there's something Mexican going on, they either want my opinion or they want me in, right? And uh, a while ago, there was a really famous um, Irish rugby player that was doing Dancing with the Stars. And uh, I got a call and said, oh, they're going to do, I don't know, I can't remember what, Paso Doble, something. Don't quote me on it because I can't remember what, but they were going to do it to uh, a song from the movie Coco. And they wanted to have this pre kind of get them in the mood. And so they wanted a pre-recorded piece for their dance. Uh, about Mexican food and they were going to bring them to the shop and I was going to show them some quick snacks and blah 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 and I was given a list a very long list of things that the rugby player would not eat <laughs> and he's like he's really into his healthy food and, and I am, I'm convinced he was totally in his head he was thinking about the the stereotypical you know thing about Mexican food being super unhealthy and I was like, yeah, no problem. We'll do tortilla chips. We'll do a fresh salsa. We'll do, at the time, I was still eating avocados. I was like, we'll do a, a, a guacamole. And, you know, he can, we can get into the spirits of it. But I was told, don't get offended because he, he won't eat it. He'll probably just pretend for the camera and that's it. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. No problem. Um, so they came in himself and the beautiful, you know, dance partner. And we, I started you know, getting the stuff ready for, for, you know, putting the recipe together. And he kept going, wow, I can't believe this. Like, you know, it, this is all so fresh. And I'm going, yeah, this is, this is Mexican food, you know? The, this kind of idea you have of Mexican food isn't really, you know, it's just a stereotype. At the end, they ended up eating all of the tortilla chips, all of the guacamole, all of the salsa. He was, he just couldn't believe that we were making something Mexican and was so fresh and so healthy. And I think to the day, that's one of my proudest moments because I thought uh, when he came in, I just thought he wasn't going to eat anything and there was nothing left when they left. So it was really nice. It drives me crazy when I hear misrepresentation of Mexican food like that because when you have a chance to eat at somebody's mm. home that's from Mexico, every time, I've had lots of salads, lots of soups that are very vegetable for to seasonal vegetables. I've had amazing preparations for fruit, amazing fresh fruit drinks. I mean, so, I mean, this is all healthy stuff and people don't think about that. They just, they think of like the chain Mexican restaurants and all the cheese laden stuff. 
And that's why when I was writing the book, I was adamant I had to have a go at that, you know. I, I have a little rant in the middle of the book about the, because my book is on tackles, right? So mm-hmm. it I, I wanted to set the record straight because if you ask an Irish person about a tackle, the first thing they think is, you know, the hard shell yeah, kind yeah. of horrible thing, process, crap. And so I had a go at it. And I have a, a taco dorado recipe and I have mm. a little... Christine, my publisher, keeps telling me to call them essays, but it is really a, a, a rant about, you know, how different a taco dorado from a taco shell is. And I had a lot of fun having a go. I'll never get sponsored by any of the big chains of Mexican food in Europe, but I'm fine with it um, because I, I really had a go at it. Um, I, I couldn't write a book on tacos and not address that huge stereotype. Now, did were you concerned that you would have some um, a lack of freedom of control when you when you initially um, started writing this? Were you of a mind that you really wanted to find a publisher that was going to let you do what you wanted to do, or were you concerned that they would want you to make something stereotypical? It's funny because I've been writing a cookbook for ten years. Um, about ten years ago, I got approached. Um, I had an agent at the time and I got approached uh, by a couple of publishers um, but I my agent was adamant that we had to have like a proper proposal and you know I had to have the book in my head and uh, it was a great exercise because it it actually I actually laid out the book properly with a table of contents and everything a couple of uh, chapter uh sample chapters, you know, it was a very professional proposal. And when it went back, I I knew nothing about book publishing. I knew a lot more now than I knew then, right? But the the one problem I kept coming about wasn't as much as, you know, we want you to write something stereotypical. It was about Mexican food being too niche for a European market, right? And I kept kept saying to them, but look, I, I, I do this for a living, you know? I know there's an awful lot of people that are into, who are interested in Mexican food, have a business around Mexican food, and it's a successful business. So why do you think this is, you know, very niche? And there was, it, you know, we couldn't convince the publishing houses that they could bet on Mexican food. And I think my timing was not right at the time. So I kind of let the idea fizzle, and I got very disheartened at the time. They were all, they were only interested on the numbers, how many you know, followers you have on social media and all that. And what I always said is my social media following isn't huge, but it is very loyal. So if every person that follows me uh, buys a book, you know, we'll sell sell out of, of a first edition, no problem. But it was just very difficult. And I got, I'm stubborn, but I got very disheartened. And I just thought, you know what? A book is a labor of love you make no money out of it. Um, I just decided, you know, we leave it and I stopped writing for a while. And then at some point, I know Christine Jensen, my my publisher for a long time. Uh, we've, you know, practically, you know, we started, I started writing a blog and, you know, Christine and Caroline Hennessy were running the, uh, the Irish Food Bloggers Association. So yeah. I was one of the the first kind of core members uh, from from the beginning, right? Right. And they were incredibly supportive. And Christine has been cookbook editor for twenty years. So um, I, I couldn't, and my agent couldn't either understand why the publishing houses here were so reluctant to do Mexican food. So. I just walked away from it and kept, you know, I wrote a lot for Irish media, but I I kind of shelved the idea of a book for a long time, but a lot of it was already written. 
and I write a lot. Um, I write mini booklets for my uh, cooking classes, right? So when I got a call from Christine in January last year um, about uh, her project Blast the Books and, you know, uh, her wanting me to write a book, uh, the first book in the series, I never doubted for a minute that I was going to have the same issues that I would have had if I was on a, you know, with a bigger publisher or on a more, you know, a, a more traditional publisher. The first thing she said to me is, I want your voice. And she knows me for a long time. She knows that I'm, you know, opinionated and uh, uh, ranty and I don't see it on the fence. So she wanted that from the beginning and she gave me all the creative license in the world and it was it was a very collaborative effort between the book designer the uh, editor the illustrator and myself and it was an amazing experience if I had had to go through the writing of this book with somebody else would have been a completely different book it would have very you know sterile and you know because they, they would never allow me to write what I wrote in this book <laughs> now um this is available now um from on Blasta books you could purchase it online um from the UK as far as I'm correct you can um Blasta books you can buy the book uh, and all of the books in the series you can buy them directly with Blasta books they ship uh, internationally um it's also out in book depository as far as I know and there is a there are a few uh, uh specialized bookshops in this that are in the book as well yeah you can buy it also if you're in the bay area you can get it from omnivore books I just want to mention too yes. and all better bookstores yeah so I'm really um you must feel just over the moon to see your your work in print I mean because you've been published in a few places um, on like the Irish Times, for instance, has this been just amazing for you to, to like be, have your name out in print and having your work going out to the public like this? Yeah, it's it's been amazing. I have to say the book has been an incredible, incredible uh, experience. Again, because I, I have, I, I don't have the usual horror stories of, oh, you know, the cover is horrible and I had no say on it or, you know, they chop this recipe or, you know, yeah. because this was all very collaborative and nothing that's in the book was not consulted and agreed between all of the amazing women involved with it. But it's also kind of, uh, I see it as a little bit as validation because I wrote for I wrote for papers and magazines and but they're kind of just one recipe or uh, a piece on an essay when you kind of hold the book in your hand and it has your name on it and it's and you're in love with it because this is I think the most important thing a lot of my friends have written books over the last 10 years and not all of them feel the same way I feel about the process of writing it because Publishing is a business and, you know, they, at the end of the day, publishers need to make money. So they tend to bet on, you know, they don't like risk. And in their eyes, I was a risk. And I think the most amazing thing, and this is going to sound really childish, but I think when, when we sold out of our first uh, print run, uh, and that was very quickly, like, within a couple of weeks of the book being published, we had run out of books. I just thought that was the most amazing validation. Oh, yeah. and, and I kind of love to kind of go around all the people who said Mexican food was so niche and going, totally so. <laughs> <laughs> very childish, but very satisfying. Um, the books so it's did... been like... Oh, I was gonna say, they really did a good job by you. They They really produced a beautiful book. I've been able to see some of the contents and it's just really gorgeous. Yeah, it's it's unusual. It's an unusual size. It's size is hardcover, it's A5, very colorful. 
and it, it is just beautiful. There's a, there's a beautiful uh, feel to it and it's the production value is great. And, and it also, it's also me on the pages. I think that yeah. for me is, it's really important. And that's most, most of the feedback we've gotten has been around the stories on each recipe. People are cooking the recipes and they're going, oh my God, this is amazing. But I love the story that goes with it. And I think that's, that's a, a niche in the market that uh, Blasta and, and Nine Bean, um, Nine Bean Row Books has really hit on the nail. There's this appetite for, for just not recipes, but stories and, and for you know, meaningful content. At the end of the day, you can download a recipe from anywhere in the internet. Some might work, some mightn't, but but it's it's what comes with the recipe, the context that goes with it. I think that's important. And for me, that was the most successful part. I love every single recipe. They're well tried and tested because they're recipes that we cook in the school or I've done at home over the years. But but I think the context of each of them. For me, it's what hosts the most uh, meaning. And I think that's all of the feedback we've, we've gotten. I think the week before the book was released, I was terrified, terrified and full of doubt. And then, you know, within two or three days of the book being out, uh, a lot of people were texting me about the goat story. And I changed my Twitter bio and now there's a goat in it. And, you know, there's loads of different things that and, and things that have trigger people to identify with it. And I think that's really, really lovely. I, I couldn't be happier. And even though we're like, there, there's this kind of hype at the beginning because it's so, it's so intense. And then it starts to quiet down and you kind of feel a bit strange because all of a sudden there's, you don't need to do anything with the book. It's just out there, it's, you know. It's doing its own thing. I think it's still, you know, it's it's lovely to see people. And you know, every every other day, I get a message from someone. Oh, I made this recipe, and it's lovely. And you know, it's all that. All that for me, it's just great validation, and 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 there's a great satisfaction. And my only regret with the book is that my dad couldn't see it printed. But other than that, I'm just delighted with it. I wish you the continued success with this wonderful book. And I'm going to put a link to it in the bio so people can uh, purchase it because they're going to want to do that. I also wish you continued success with Picado, your uh, store and Thank school. You. I really had a great time talking with you. I hope we really get to have you on here again. I've loved, I could talk to you all day. Uh, thank you, Dean. Same here. It was great. And uh... that was my conversation with author Lily Ramirez Ferran. Again, you could purchase her book, Tacos, for, or the, from the link on the website from Blasta Books, or you can visit the links to her websites that we have on the bio as well. Next week, we're gonna have, on Monday, Raquel Sharp from the Charlie Cart Program, which is a program that brings food education to communities throughout the United States. On Friday, we have author and food writer and also Public Programs Director for the Museum of Food and Drink, Sari Kamen. And she also has the Food Without Borders podcast that was quite wonderful a few years back. She'll be on Friday. This episode is sponsored by the Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study in food, drink, and culture and human history. To learn more about them, you can go to the link on the bio at www.chnorcal.org. If you follow my podcast and enjoy it, I'm also on Buy Me a Coffee. If you like my work, you can reach out and uh, buy me a coffee or share your thoughts at www.buymeacoffee.com. Well-seasoned lib. Help us promote this podcast and share this episode with a friend by sharing it on social media. On Twitter, you can share me as at WellLibrarian. Follow the Well-Season Librarian podcast on Spotify and iTunes, and you'll get notified when new episodes are released. You can subscribe to the podcast newsletter and get updates on my articles and more at wellseasonlibrarian.substack.com. Our podcast theme song, Talk About Love, is sung by the band Kitty Cat Fan Club.
Their label, Asian Man Records, is given permission for its use. You can check them out and other bands by getting the album at Asian Man Records' website at asianmanrecords.com. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend and keep on cooking. I've been getting